0: Well, hello, and welcome to the fourth of our CSF podcast, focusing specifically on psoriatic arthritis. Is it really four times we've done this, folks? Well, that tells you how much fun it is. We're going to be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis, as well as our AXPAP podcast. We'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of psoriatic arthritis. Well, I'm Professor Ian McInnes. I work in the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and today I'm joined by two distinguished researchers in the field of rheumatology. These are Professor Laura Coates, an NIHR clinician, scientist, and senior clinical research fellow at the Oxford Psoriatic Arthritis Centre, as well as Professor Peter Nash, professor at the School of Medicine, Griffith University, and director of the Rheumatology Research Unit on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. So there's no accident in the background he's chosen today. Thanks for that, Peter, (laughs) bringing a little brightness into our lives. Well, it's my pleasure to hand over to Laura, who's going to lead the way to talk to you about our, our papers today. Laura, over to you.
1: Thank you, Ian. So the papers we're covering in today's discussion highlight the frontiers of our understanding in psoriatic arthritis, but also in associated conditions. The first paper that we'll discuss aimed to systemically review the instance of herpes luster across patients who had PSA but also rheumatoid, AS and UC patients who'd been treated either with tofacitinib, baricitinib or upadacitinib. The second paper then goes on to describe the methodology being undertaken in the groundbreaking phase 3b APEX study which seeks to further assess the effects of gazelcomab given four-weekly or eight-weekly on PSA outcomes. So I'll hand over to Peter for the first paper.
2: So thanks, Laura. and Thanks, Ian, for the opportunity to say a few words. Zoster is one of those issues that are front of mind, particularly when JAK inhibitors have been used now in psoriatic arthritis. And if we think we've got a Zoster problem with JAKs, you wait till anifolumab and the other interferon inhibitors Guts, start getting used in lupus. So this is a very topical paper. It's entitled herpes patients with inflammatory arthritis or ulcerative colitis, treated with tofacitinib, Baricitinib, or upatacitinib. And it was a systematic review of clinical trials and real-world studies. Now they went to a lot of trouble. They looked at 1,710 records. They looked at 53 clinical trials. They looked at 25 real-world studies. And they tried to sort out the incidents, whether there are differences between disease states. They tried to look at whether there was an issue combining with glucocorticoid, combining with methotrexate. Was there an issue of recurrence after a patient had had an episode of zoster? And they also tried to see what's the best way of managing zoster and whether zoster management has an issue um, across the disease state. So we can discuss all of those things over time. Now, um, the biggest issue that I have, is they left out forgotten which if any of the Jacks is the one least likely to cause Zoster's an issue. So it would have been lovely to include that in their study. And the bottom line really was that you would expect the general population to have an incidence about one in a hundred patient years. The TNFs might increase that a little, but not much and the Jax increase it to about three per hundred patient years as a take home message. Now, if there are ethnicity differences, so if you come from Taiwan, if you come from Korea and Japan, that rate goes up to somewhere between seven and eight per hundred patient years. And there seem to be a higher risk in the rheumatoid population, as you would expect, because these patients are much more likely to be on corticosteroids much more likely to have combination methotrexate in some of our patients with psoriatic arthritis and in particular, ankylosing spondylitis, where you have a much younger patient population who aren't on these co-therapies. So they, they went through very careful detail. You can find the full paper on the CSF Forum website. You can download the slide presentation for use and, and look at so subsequently. They looked at why zoster should be an issue when you uh, and how um, varicella virus blocks interferon-induced JAK stat signaling or why the JAKs are an issue. And they went through in quite some detail in a systematic literature review, different doses of varicitinib, two and four milligrams. And they and they did show there's a dose effect with that and with 15 and 30 lupudicitinib. They went through different disease states, including ulcerative colitis, where they'd use a higher dose than we use in rheumatology. And they went through the three different jacks and they talked about some of the nice papers that Jeffrey Curtis in particular has done looking at this particular issue. There was some limited data to answer questions like steroid use, methotrexate combination use in the papers that that we have available to us in this review. But their take-home message was that zoster risk is a class effect for JAK inhibitors. Their risk is higher when compared to non-biologic and biologic drugs, and it's partially disease dependent and there is increased risk with age, ethnicity, and steroid use. So back to you, Laura.
1: Lovely, and do you think this is something that impacts on your clinical practice? Is it something that influences your choice when you're selecting drugs?
2: Well, it doesn't change my decision to use or not use a jack, but it certainly changes the conversation I have with the patients prior to getting them started. And the main reason is in our country, Zostavax, the live attenuated vaccine, which only works in 50% of patients, uh, is reimbursed by the government. But the killed vaccine, which is 99% effective is a recombinant vaccine, is not reimbursed at the moment. So people are $250 by two out of pocket. And sometimes they find that a daunting thing. But as with vaccination in general, we are trying to get the vaccination into patients early rather than at a time when they're flaring, and we have to make a jack decision.
1: That makes sense.
0: Yeah, just if I can come in here, um, I mean, Laura, What about you? What do you say to a patient before they start a JAK inhibitor if they have psoriatic arthritis?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, that's part of shared decision making, isn't it? And it depends a little bit on how many options you have for that particular patient in front of you. It depends how many things they've already tried or what contraindications they have to particular drugs. And obviously with other issues with JAK inhibitors, I think there is quite a detailed discussion that we have with patients to, to share the potential risks, but also the potential benefits. You know, often we we need jack inhibitors to try and control disease. If we've got somebody with uh, PSA, axial disease and IBD, you know, there, there are key patients for whom these are really potentially the best option um, to be able to treat these patients. So I think it's important to have that open conversation with the patient. And I think data like this really helps. Because what the patients want to know is actually what is the risk? You know, there is an increased risk, but if you can explain it in terms of the chance of that happening per year or the chance of that happening in total, with some really solid data that compares with other drugs, patients not taking jack inhibitors, then it gives them a much better idea of what sort of risk and benefit they're taking on.
0: Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? And just to be clear, the other issues you're alluding to for our listeners are concerns around safety for cardiovascular and oncologic events. Now, that's not the subject of today's podcast. We pick that up, that up in other other sessions. But certainly, you know, if someone has more than one risk factor for cardiovascular disease, that might dominate my discussion even even over and above uh, a conversation around herpes zoster. Um, look, that's been a really interesting overview. I guess one final question back to you, Peter. You, you read the paper in detail for us. Was there anything in here that surprised you? I'm always wondering because I never know whether an SLR is just a basket to bring everything into (laughs) or sometimes SLRs actually say, oh, hey, when you look at it in totality, something leapt out at me. So was it was there a leap out at you moment here or was this pretty much a state of the art? I think I think the state of the art. I think the one thing that did
2: surprise me, they couldn't show that adding methotrexate increased risk. Whereas the very earliest TOFA zoster papers said if you eliminate steroids, you eliminate methotrexate, the risk almost comes back down to background risk. Um, So that was the one thing that that surprised me, that adding MTX didn't increase zoster risk particularly. The other thing, just before I hand back to you, Ian, is a lot of rheumos are concerned that the killed vax will flare their rheumatic disease, will flare their arthritis, flare their PSA. And I just wanted to throw in there that Weinblatt and his group have looked at hundreds of patients starting Shingrix, all in rheumatoid, to be fair, and about 7% flared. And they were really quite minor flares that could be managed quite easily. And 30% had some side effects like pain at the injection site, myalgia fatigue, but nothing too serious. So quite reassuring about using the kill vaccine.
0: Peter, you're the gift who just keeps giving. You're always throwing these additional (laughs) nuggets for us in in clinical practice, and it's hugely valued. Thank you. Um, And I'd refer colleagues across to Michael Weinblatt's work in Boston if they want to read a bit more about that. It's a a very elegant study. So look, let's move on. Um, Laura, you're going to tell us a bit about uh, one of the P19 inhibitors, uh, gazelcumab, and particularly, you're going to be thinking about radiographic progression. Laura, over to you.
1: Yeah, so this second paper is a methodology paper. So this is a paper that's ongoing um, and it's looking at uh, the effect of gazelcomab in inhibiting radiographic progression in patients who have uh, psoriatic arthritis. The study is called APEX and it's a phase 3b large uh, multicenter placebo controlled trial. So obviously we know that gazelcomab has already been approved for treating active psoriatic arthritis, and that was following two Phase three stu- studies in the Discover program, Discover One and Discover Two. Um, but this study is aiming to look much more at structural damage within the joints. And we know, obviously in all of our inflammatory arthritis patients that ongoing inflammation is associated with later structural damage, and that obviously that can have a significant impact on uh, patient reported outcomes. And we know from work with patients as well that patients find uh, radiographic progression or prevention of damage to be an important outcome when they're selecting therapy and thinking about treatment in psoriatic arthritis. So this study is aimed to really build on what was found in Discover 2, which did look at radiographs but didn't find uh, a significant change uh, in both doses and further assess the impact of gazelcomab either at the four-weekly dose or the eight-weekly dose uh, in psoriatic arthritis. Uh, And it's been enriched, as a lot of these studies are, to identify patients who are at a higher risk of radiographic progression. So we don't see huge rates of radiographic progression across PSA as a whole. Um, Obviously, these studies need to be relatively short when they're placebo-controlled. So to be able to see a difference with a drug, you need to have patients who are slightly higher risk. So the patients that they're recruiting into the APEX study have active psoriatic arthritis, at least three to and three swollen joints uh, as the normal approach, uh, but also have to have a high CRP. So that's, a, again, aiming to pick up people who have active disease um, and also patients who have baseline erosions. So we know that patients who already have erosive disease are at a much higher chance of developing further erosive disease. They're recruiting patients who have active disease despite previous conventional treatment, so uh, conventional DMARDs, apremilast or anti-inflammatories, uh, but who then have these three tender and three swollen joints. And this study primary outcome is actually still a clinical outcome. So looking at the ACR20 response uh, after six months on treatment, but it has a major secondary endpoint, which is also powered And that's looking at change from baseline to week 24 in the PSA-modified van der Heide-Sharp score. So the standard kind of radiographic assessment in hands and feet. So it's quite a large study. Um, They're recruiting uh, 350 patients um, in one gazelcomab arm, 250 in the other, and 350 in placebo. So a very large study. And that will obviously give very high power to detect the differences in ACR20, but will also give reasonable power to detect, to detect any significant difference in the radiographic change, um, the Sharp van der Heide score at week 24. So obviously this is a useful study, hopefully in the future, that will give us a clear steer on whether this drug at the two different doses um, can show uh, an impact on structural damage, We know that that's important to clinicians when we're choosing therapy and also to patients when they're thinking about different therapy options. So I think it will give us useful additional data on the efficacy of gazelcomab that we can then bring into the mix with the other drugs that we have to choose between. Um, So obviously we're in a, I guess, a crowded space. Um, A problem that's lovely to have is having too many drugs to choose between. Um, but the more data that we have on these different therapies, the better we can have that discussion with the patient and make an individual choice for that particular patient in front of us.
0: Thanks, Laura. That's a, a beautiful synthesis of this ongoing study. Um, I must say, I find this quite a thought-provoking trial. Uh, and I, I, I let, let, me, let me kick off by asking um, Peter if you've got any views on what the inverted commas, limitations of discover to where here? Because gazelcomab has been approved in a fair number of countries now, and there's clear evidence that it differentiates from placebo in terms of many efficacy measures. So <clears throat> what, what, what why are we now doing APEX? Well, I, I think they need it for their label is probably the major
2: reason. And, and to be honest, we don't do a lot of x-rays anymore. Um, But we do like to see it when a new drug is introduced to prove to us that it's a true disease-modifying agent and not just a very expensive anti-inflammatory. So that gives us a nice warm feeling that this truly does prevent progression. But as Laura was the first to say, that, you know, the placebo arm erodes at such a slow rate, you know, one unit over six or 12 months out of a scale of 440 or something. So. X-rays are important, but not so much relevant at the the clinic level, but very
0: important to confirm
2: disease modification because it's tied in with all the bad outcomes.
0: And do we we really think that P19 inhibition is not going to be inhibitory of radiographic? I mean, we saw a dose effect in Discover
2: (laughs) 2. I think the most interesting thing is whether there's a a group of patients who need four-weekly and not eight weekly, because every now and then we get patients who we uh, compassionately get a few extra doses to settle them down. So I'd, I'd like to see confirmed that there, if there is a difference between four and eight weekly with a monoclonal with a very long half life.
0: Yeah, that's fair, um, I, and I, I think therefore we're we're fairly content that the study does have its in place informing practice. Um, uh, Laura, what um, what are you doing with gazelkimab and, for that matter, other p nineteen inhibitors? What are you doing with that at the moment? Where does that sit in the therapeutic armamentarium for you?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, it's obviously been good to have another option. They've come through dermatology before, so we've had some patients already on them who've, you know, been re- prescribed within the dermatology sphere and then come over to us with arthritis. So it's certainly something um, that we uh, are using and have been using for a little while. Um, I think, again, it comes down to that choice between drugs, doesn't it? So at the moment, we've still got a question around axial efficacy for P19 inhibitors. So we're not using them in patients who have axial disease, Um, but we obviously have very good data on skin efficacy, which is very useful for some of our shared combined patients uh, and I think reasonable data here on efficacy in joint disease as well. I don't think that kind of lack of radiographic data so far has particularly influenced whether I would or wouldn't use it. But as Peter says, it's it's nice to have and reassuring to know from the trials. I think the big question yeah. with P19 inhibitors clinically is the time to response. So a lot of the studies are looking at week 24 outcomes. This one included and it does seem to be a little bit slower to get that maximal response. And for some patients, that's fine. For some patients, six months can be a long time to wait for a reasonable outcome.
0: Yeah, that's a great could, point, isn't it? Carry on, I Peter, add, please.
2: Yeah. We've been very impressed with the safety of both the 17 inhibitors and the 23s. We don't see bacterial sepsis. We don't see opportunist infection. At least the 23s will treat any IBD rather than potentially aggravate it. And I think that safety is has borne into the new studies now combining therapies, TNF plus 23 inhibition, TNF plus 17 inhibition, and maybe we could start with expensive combo, get person in a good place, and then withdraw one agent. All those studies are underway at the moment. Yeah,
0: Peter, you're alluding to. Ongoing studies in psoriatic arthritis, just to be clear, we don't want people using combo biologics on an ad hoc basis. And I think particularly you're informed by the VEGA trial, which is an inflammatory bowel disease study in which TNF inhibition was combined with a P19 inhibitor. Uh, that, That paper was published actually very recently in The Lancet, if you want to go and have a look at it. In fact, memo to ourselves, we better bring that to the CSF website if it isn't already there. Um, just a, maybe a final thought. Um, you talked about joint disease, um, Laura. But all three of us parse our patients out into different tissue compartments. Sorry, I know it's my long-running theme: the different <laughs> tissue compartments of psoriatic arthritis. And you know what? What we see with gazelcumab and the other P nineteen inhibitors, for that matter, and I think we also see it with the the seventeen A and now the seventeen AF dual inhibitors, is we see very, very robust responses in the skin and Decent responses in the anthesis, and it's those pure synovitic patients that maybe sometimes you're thinking, mm, how am I going to do here? Now the, the the trial data suggests that synovitis responses are are very satisfactory. But just before we we finish, can, I, I like from each of you the kind of the thumbnail sketch of a patient for the different MOAs. So so Laura, maybe I'm going to just have a bit of fun here. Could you start with your thumbnail sketch? of a patient who might be the recipient of a P19 inhibitor. And Peter, heads up, I'm coming to you with the with the <laughs> 17A inhibitors momentarily. And then you can contradict each other, which would be great fun. So Laura, P19 inhibitor for you first.
1: Yeah, so I think for a P19, probably somebody with major psoriasis issues, either high impact or high um, volume of disease. Um, Both of those can be equally important to the patient. It doesn't have to be a lot of body surface area if it's somewhere very obvious. Um, And so I think high impact is important as well. As Peter said, some of those safety concerns would be key. So patients who are higher risk in terms of other comorbidities, maybe more elderly, um, patients potentially with other comorbidities, uh, and probably those with more moderate joint disease. Um, But uh, and clearly not axial disease. So uh, I'm happy across different peripheral manifestations. So enthesitis, dactylitis, joint disease, um, but not patients with axial disease for me.
0: And, and I guess symptoms suggestive of inflammatory bowel disease would would probably not put you off with the P19 inhibitors at the moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. It would be, uh, I think, a reasonable option. Maybe not my first option if they've got active inflammatory bowel disease. You might go for something that has a license in that space. Um, but some yep. positive data, so that so that would make sense.
0: Yeah, sure. So obviously that was a leading question, Peter. Over to you, 17A inhibitors.
2: <laughs> well, just before I mention that, I thought of you in your tissue hypothesis, Here, when I reviewed a paper that looked at prevention of PSO turning into PSA, and they showed that the 23 inhibitors were slightly superior at blocking that progression, compared to some of the other molecules that I thought of Ian and your upstream 23 inhibition in different tissues. So the 17s, as Laura has already alluded to, cover axial. They cover all the different domains. Their safety is outstanding, apart from a little bit of thrush and this question of one in a thousand in PSA aggravating IBD. Um, the skin in, in, is, they're now talking passing fifty plus percent, that's pretty impressive. Nails as well. I wouldn't give it to a uveitis or an IBD sufferer. But I'm tending to use them before the TNF because of their safety and because they get a 10 percentage point advantage at twenty, fifty, seventy 70 in a bio-naive TNF-IR, knowing I have the monoclonal TNFs up my sleeve if I need them later down the line. So um, I've found them very, very helpful and very safe. In a in an Asia Pacific region where TB is an issue, I really don't believe there's any opportunity to TB signal with the 17s.
0: That's really, that's really helpful, Peter. Probably worth reminding ourselves that the, the the two head-to-head trials we have between 17A and TNF inhibition did not separate. Uh, um, Exceeding Spirit head-to-head did not formally separate the the 17A and, and TNF inhibitors, but but that clinical inflection that you give to just that that pragmatic uh, advice is super helpful. Um, we, we, we obviously don't want to walk away from TNF inhibitors here. I think you've just made the point that they're they tried and trusted, more than two decades of experience, and they do cover a lot of the tissues. But we know that there is superiority in head-to-head trials in the skin when we look at either P19 or 17A inhibitors as compared to TNF. So we're just beginning to tease out those those clinical phenotypes. Boy, we'd love biomarkers that got us there, but we're not there yet. And in the interest of balance, just finishing up, um, Laura, you you gave us a, a very quick sense of who might get a jack inhibitor earlier on. I'd love you just to reprise that because it was very helpful. And I'm keen that all four modes of action are thought about in this podcast. So the, the, the Jack inhibitors, when are you thinking about that?
1: So I think they give us, again, efficacy across all six domains with evidence in IBD as well. So useful in some of the patients with additional issues. Um, And they give us our first effective drug that's oral for axial disease, which for a minority of our patients is really important. We've had patients who have been absolutely dreading having to inject themselves with very little option with axial disease. So I think that's really useful. But again, it comes down to that safety discussion predominantly, I think so generally in younger patients, in patients without uh, risk factors uh, for cardiovascular disease or malignancy, um, where you would feel a bit safer using them. Having said that, there is a case for using them even in higher risk patients, if that's the only option. Uh, And sometimes we do have to make difficult decisions with our patients where we've been through numerous options, we've got limited options left, uh, and it may be that the risk benefit still is in favour of using a jack. In somebody who has a, a cardiovascular risk um, themselves.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks, Laura. And again, just in the interest of, of balance, we 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 always have a premilast, But I think for most of us now, as an oral inhibitor of PD four, we, we it, it for for me is used quite uncommonly now, and 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 only in mild disease. So that that and I think the point you make there for about the potency of an oral JAK inhibitor, uh, Laura, is very well taken. Well, look folks time precludes further discussion um i and not not only that but looking at the the sunshine outside peter's home i I really feel for us brits as scots in the north and uh uh, laura down in the in the sunny south it's it's too much to bear peter so i am (laughs) going to bring this podcast to, to a gentle conclusion As ever, it has been such a joy, guys. I learn every time I talk with you, too. And I'm absolutely sure that those who are watching and listening will have learned, too. So thanks to you uh, for joining us for this PSA podcast. It was brought to you by the CSF. I, I hope you enjoyed it, found it useful. And if you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss any future episodes. We're already cogitating on what they may be. And if you want to read more about what we've discussed today, head over to cytokinesignaling.com, cytokinesignaling.com, and you'll find detailed summary slides of each of the papers. So Peter, Laura, thanks ever so much, and we'll see you all next time around. Bye. Thanks,